Welcome to another inspirational message from Gateway North Church based out of Winnipeg, Canada. Your Sunday sermon, any day of the week. If you've got your Bibles, and I trust you all have, would you turn with me please to Matthew's Gospel? We're going to do a reading from that uh, in a few minutes. But while you're turning there, let's begin with a few fun facts. What do you think the following people have in common? Richard Gere, Paul McCartney, Jennifer Lopez, and Charlie Chaplin. Or... Elton John, Brad Pitt, Pope John Paul II, and Mick Jagger. Or how about Laurel and Hardy, Neil Young, Justin Bieber, and Billy Graham? Well, just so we don't spend the rest of the morning trying to figure out what all those people have in common, here's the answer. They've all visited Winnipeg. Each one of these superstars have come to our city, and they're not alone. I never mentioned Taylor Swift, Al Jolson, Bob Hope, Buster Keaton, or Harry Houdini. In actual fact, the list goes on and on and on. Because in addition to the rich and famous, just about every member of the British royal family has been to Winnipeg as well. The Princess Royal, Princess Anne, came here once. Princess Margaret visited twice, as did Prince William. The Prince of Wales, now King Charles III, God bless him, has been to the peg four times, and Queen Elizabeth II six times. But you might be surprised to learn that the most frequent royal visitor to Manitoba and to our city was Prince Philip, the Duke of Edinburgh, who came here no less than nine times. Today, though, Palm Sunday on the church calendar, I want us to think about another important visit. Not to Winnipeg this time, but to Jerusalem. And the report of it isn't in the free press, it's in Matthew's gospel. So turn there, please, to Matthew chapter 21, and we're going to read the first nine verses together. When they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, you shall say the Lord needs them, and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet, saying, Say to the daughter of Zion, Behold, your king is coming to you. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. And the disciples went and did as Jesus directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and and he sat on them. And most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees 
and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Now my text and the title of the message today is in verse 5, which says, Behold, your king is coming to you. Why don't we say that together? Behold, your king is coming to you. That was the message of God to the Jews at the beginning of that first holy week so many years ago. Jerusalem, your king is coming to you. He was promised. You have waited. And now it's your time. Behold, your king is coming to you. But this isn't just a word to Jerusalem. I believe it's God's message to our congregation here at Gateway North. Gateway, your king is coming to you. He's not forgotten you or forsaken you. It's been a hard road. You've been buffeted. You've been bashed. You've been disappointed. But now it's your time. Behold, your king is coming to you. In this transition, in these challenging times, in your weariness, in your need, your king is coming to you. Let's say it to one another. Your king is coming to you. But how does he come? Well, let's visit our passage and I want to draw out three ways in which the king came to Jerusalem, but I want to allow them to minister hope to us today. Because like he came to them, so he will come to us too. And the first is in verse 4. Just look at it right there in your Bibles. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet. That shows us, first of all, that our king comes to us in faithfulness. Our king comes to us in faithfulness. And that's been a theme that's gone through the worship this morning. The words of our text were actually written by Zechariah 500 years before. They are just one of 300 Old Testament prophecies about Jesus which covered every aspect of his life from the place of his birth to who his mother would be to the name of his hometown to the nature of his ministry to the mode of his death to the reality of his resurrection. The Old Testament is punctuated with promise after promise of his coming. Now that said, in the 400 years before he was born, there'd been a silence. The heavens seemed like brass. The spirit hadn't moved. No prophet had spoken. Hope and expectation was at an all-time low. And God was seemingly inactive but then one day the angel appeared the virgin conceived a baby was born in Bethlehem 
The brokenhearted were healed, blind eyes were opened, and the poor received the good news. And one after another, ancient words began to be fulfilled. So by the time Jesus rides into Jerusalem, as we have read, it was clear that God really is faithful to all his words, as the psalmist says. He was faithful then, and he will be faithful now. If he kept his word to Israel, he'll keep his word to us. Let me remind you of some of those words, some of those promises that we can claim for our own. There's Hebrews 13 verse 5 which says, I will never leave you or forsake you. There's Psalm 91 verse 15 which assures us, when you call out to me, I will answer. Jesus promises us in Mark 6, 23, whatever you ask, I will give you. Paul's words to the Philippians is also God's promise to us. My God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Be assured, Isaiah says, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overwhelm you. And the reason? Because God has said, I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. Plans for good and not for harm. To give you a hope and a future. Your king is coming to you in faithfulness. Let me tell you about how the king came to Valinai in faithfulness within the last year. Many of you know that We'd been estranged from our daughter and grandson since 2015. Making those seven years some of the most painful and difficult of our life. We seemed helpless to make any difference. And whenever we tried, it just seemed to make things worse. So we prayed and we stood on God's promises. We claimed Psalm 91 verse 15 that says, when you call out, I will answer. We reminded him that God had said he would turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. And that he would bring reconciliation, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And then last May, amazingly, we reconnected. This time we ended up meeting and after seven years of asking, God faithfully answered and wonderfully restored. Later on, by the way, we learned that our little grandson had also been praying that God would let him see his grandma and papa again. See, God is faithful. In all his words. And the, these promises, they aren't just words on paper. This is God's word, God's promise to you and me. And your king is coming to you, faithful to fulfill the promises that he has made. So if you are seeking God over something that's not happened yet, keep on believing. Keep on keeping on because your king is coming to you 
in faithfulness to fulfill everything that he's promised. Now, God always comes to us, but sometimes he doesn't come in the way we expect him. So, for instance, he might not come at the time we want. In actual fact, I'm learning that God's clock isn't set to my time zone. But it's always the right time. He might not come in the way we expect him. In fact, the Jews of Jesus' day were looking for a Messiah to be a seasoned general who would come riding a white charger, leading a great army, coming with rage and fury to pull down the oppressors from Israel and set them free. But when he came, he came humble and riding a donkey. It might not be when we want him to come or how we want him to come, but it will always be how he should come. Because Zechariah, when he penned this promise in verse 4 and 5, said he comes righteous. He comes in the right way. And he comes bringing salvation. That leads us to our second point. God comes to us in faithfulness. Let's say it together. God comes to us in faithfulness. But secondly, God comes to us bringing salvation. The king comes to us bringing salvation. Jesus entered Jerusalem as part of a great procession of pilgrims bringing their sacrificial lambs that they were to offer five days later on what we call Good Friday. Some would have been carried under strong arms, some across broad shoulders. Most still would have been guided with tethers and others were driven along in small flocks. But however they came, worshippers were bringing their lambs. And so was God. Because this triumphal entry was God bringing his lamb into that Passover. Jesus had been presented by John the Baptist as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And in Israel, a lamb always meant sacrifice. Months before, Jesus had told his disciples, the Son of Man didn't come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Ransom here means the price of redemption. It means the cost of atonement. It described a substitutory sacrifice that turned away wrath by taking away guilt. And days before, Jesus had reminded them, the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests. They will deliver him over to the Gentiles. And that phrase, delivered over, repeated twice, is a technical term for offering a sacrifice. Jesus didn't die because Caiaphas plotted or because Pilate buckled or because Judas betrayed, but because God willed and planned this moment from the foundation of the world. The cross wasn't an execution. It wasn't a miscarriage of justice. It wasn't an act of martyrdom. It was a sacrifice to take away sin. 
Behold, your king is coming to you, bringing salvation. And he's been doing it for the last 2,000 years. Sometimes in the strangest of places. Back in 1994, Rwanda was in the grip of a genocide that claimed over 800,000 lives in a span of just three months. Bands of militiamen roamed the country, murdering summarily. One would-be victim was my friend Shadrach. He was a high school teacher at the time, and he was driving outside the city when he was ambushed by one of these gangs. When they discovered he was part of the wrong people group, the leader told him he was going to die right there on the spot. Then Shadrach made a strange request. He said, well, if I'm going to die, can I sing a song before you kill me? I've got my guitar in my car. Well, surprisingly, they agreed. And so he got his guitar and he started to sing a worship song. Within a few minutes, he noticed that some of these tough soldiers' tears were coming down their cheeks. When he'd finished, somebody shouted out, sing another. So he sang another. And then after that, they requested another. And as he exalted Christ, these soldiers got down on their knees, asked Jesus into their lives. And instead of them killing him, he planted a church with them. Behold, your king is coming to you with salvation in our lifetime we have seen more people saved than in the previous 2000 years of church history combined about two people every second the most rapid growth is happening in what used to be enemy strongholds the king is coming with salvation to iran according to operation world when that nation became an Islamic Republic in 1979, there were less than 500 Iranian Christians. Today, though, the church numbers upwards of a million, some sources say. The king came with salvation to communist China. According to the Boston University School of Theology, over the last 40 years, the church there has grown by 10,000% and is experiencing the largest numerical revival of any previous move of God at any other time in church history. Your king is coming, bringing salvation. And your king has come bringing salvation to Indonesia, where, according to Charisma News, two million Muslims come to Christ every year. And this morning, this same king comes to us to save and forgive. Has he come to you to save you and forgive you? Has he come to you bringing salvation? Today can be that day. And Peter's going to give us an opportunity later on. So our king comes to us in faithfulness, keeping his promise. Our king comes to us with salvation, forgiving sin.
But there's a third way in which our king comes to us. Our king comes to us in sovereign control. Woven into the details of this story is the truth that when he went through those gates of Jerusalem, Jesus wasn't out of control. He was in perfect control. He wasn't a victim riding to an inevitable death, but he was a sovereign who was in charge. He rides to fulfill prophecy. Matthew calls him a king. The crowd affirm him as the son of David, a royal title showing he had authority and lordship. And a little detail that we often overlook is that he was sovereign over creation because he sat on the colt of a donkey that was unbroken that no one had sat on, Luke tells us. If I'd have tried to do that, that thing would have bucked and bitten and neighed and resisted. But when he did it, it recognized Jesus as master over him. Never be in a shadow of doubt. The Bible teaches us that God is in sovereign control over our every circumstances. Not, not over some, not over the easy ones, but over every circumstance. David tells us in Psalm 29 verse 10, the Lord sits enthroned above the flood as king forever. Whatever your flood is, whatever my flood is, there's one who is greater who reigns over it. The chronicler writes, you are the Lord of everything. Power and might are in your hand. Job admits, you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Isn't that a great verse, eh? You can do anything and no plan of yours, not sing one single word that God utters or plans can be thwarted. Paul tells the Ephesians, God works all things according to the purpose of his will. To the Romans, he writes, God works everything for good to those who love him. And in Philippians 2, we learn that God has given him a name above every name. And at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord because he is in sovereign control over every circumstance. Now, this isn't just words on a page, folks. This was worked out in reality. When the disciples thought the storm would sink their ship, Jesus stands and is sovereign over the storm. When Jesus and Peter receive a surprise tax bill, Jesus was sovereign over the situation. He tells Peter to go fishing and when he pulls the fish out, in its mouth is the exact amount of money. Maybe some of us need to go to the lake at this tax time and keep throwing our rod out there. When the wine ran out at Cana of Galilee, Jesus was greater than the crisis and turned 180 gallons of water into the finest wine any of the wedding guests had ever tasted, rescuing the bridegroom and their parents from deep shame. And he still exercises absolute sovereignty today over every circumstance. 
Let me show you a picture. This cutie is Elizabeth. She was born with a heart defect. And the doctors prescribed for her a course of surgeries to correct all the things that were wrong. When she was three months old, she was to begin. But before they went in to start the first surgery, they had to do some measurements of the pressures in her lungs and in her heart. Long story short, as they were probing about to do that, on the way out, they closed off her blood supply. So oxygenated blood did not reach her brain for over 15 minutes. The next morning, her mum's there in the ICU with her and she's feeding her and this disheveled figure comes to the door, looks a mess. And he said, what are you doing? And so she thinks I've done something wrong. She said, I'm feeding my baby. He said, is she all right? She says, she's fine. On further examination, she realizes this is the surgeon that was in the theater the day before. When it all comes out, he realizes that this little girl should be brain dead because her brain was starved of oxygen for so long. But you know what? Her king came to her. And he came in sovereign control. And he was the one that outranked all the surgeons in that team. And when the laws of medicine said she'll be a vegetable for the rest of the life, her life, the sovereign king said, I countermand that and forbid it. And this is her today. Absolutely wonderful. What's your storm? What's your need? What's your crisis? Whatever it is, he is in sovereign control. He's in control of a massive mortgage. He's in control of an unfinished project. There's no circumstance over which Jesus Christ does not rule and reign. Let me finish with the words of Charles Spurgeon and then Corrie ten Boom. Let me give you Corrie ten Boom's first. She used to say, when you go through a tunnel, don't try and jump off the train. Sit tight and trust the engineer to bring you through. He knows what he's doing. He's in control. And Charles Spurgeon, the prince of preachers, said, when you go through a trial, the sovereignty of God is the pillow on which you can lay your head. Isn't that a wonderful thing? That we are safe and secure in the hands of the king who comes in faithfulness, who comes with salvation, and who is in sovereign control. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Gateway North podcast. We hope you've been challenged and inspired from God's word. To find out more about Gateway Church, head to gatewaywinnipeg.com.